Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Hello, it's wonderful to have you with us today. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to our monthly teleconference series. This month, the topic is I-140 overviews and recent trends. I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys, Brian Green, who's an attorney with over 10 years experience as an attorney, and Kevin Andrews, who's been with our law firm for over half a dozen years. Um, as you can imagine, the topic of I-140 petitions filed by employers on behalf of foreign nationals is an extremely hot and important topic. And I know that each of you listening today really wants to get an overview and insight on some of these issues. So in today's teleconference, we hope to touch upon a few important issues. Uh, one, obviously, the purpose of the I-140 petition. Then we want to discuss trends issues like whether the employer truly has a legitimate or bona fide job offer, how the employee can prove the prior education and the prior work experience, and an employer's ability to pay and how the employer can meet or satisfy those kinds of requirements. And we also hope to share with you between Kevin, Brian, and myself, Sheila Murthy, to provide tips and strategies on how you can successfully file a strong I-140 petition and hopefully obtain approvals. So, Brian, what exactly is the purpose of an I-140 petition? Thank you, Sheila. The purpose of the I-140 petition is to classify a worker in one of the employment-based preference categories. So typically, this is the second stage of the green card process. And the PERM has been certified by Department of Labor, and the employer files an I-140 petition with USAS seeking to have the worker approved for a category. It could be EB-2, often CB-3, but that's really what you're doing. You're asking USAS, hey, approve this worker for this category, so that way they can eventually move on to the third stage, which is the I-45 application stage. Okay. And so, you know, in terms of talking about the latest trends in the processing of I-140 petitions, we're seeing a lot of NOARs or notice of intentions to revoke of previously approved I-140 petitions. This means that the USCIS is now coming back and asking questions that presumably were reviewed initially, but now they're getting concerned that maybe the issues weren't fully explored initially or circumstances may have changed either with the employer, the employee, or the economy and outside conditions to require revisiting the issues. So what are some of these factors and reasons why um, the employer, why the USCIS is going back to the employer to revoke the petitions? Uh, yeah, Sheila, it's a great question. And you know, I think this topic could have been called I-140 adjudication and re-adjudication trends because, mm -hmm. you know, what we're seeing is these issues coming back, like you said, after the approval many years later, it could kind of, you know, side uh, sideswipe a, an employer who's just, you know, focusing on 
filing future cases and just growing his or her business. So generally, I think the evidence that we're at see we're seeing USCIS ask for in the context of these re-adjudications are evidence where, uh, excuse me, the job offer must be what's called a realistic one. What's a realistic job is the language that they're using. And this is sort of a catch-all provision that I think USCIS is using to justify some of their more specific requests. So I think, and Brian, you've seen some of these, uh, you know, uh, requests for realistic job offers taken, you know, different forms too. I have. It, the key here is that there has to be a bona fide job offer, as you said, and that means that the employer has to show that the job qualifies for the requested classification. It can't be some outlandish job you've just made up. That the employer has a bona fide job offer and can show the ability to pay the required wage and that the beneficiary is qualified. So there's three elements there. And when they say realistic, they're looking to see whether or not this job is realistic for the location, for the industry, for the type of employer involved. So they're really looking at a big picture here, but you're, you're, you're right, Kevin. They're looking at, can we go back and see, did, they, did something slip through here, or, or can we be more stringent with the requirements now? It looks a little confusing. Maybe, Kevin, do you have any well, examples to share with us? Yeah, I mean, you know, an emerging trend that we're seeing with USCIS, as uh, Sheila, I think, mentioned before, you know, when you get to the I-140 stage, that's typically you're in the second stage of the process, or I think Brian actually mentioned, uh, you know, the first stage is following that labor certification, which many of you know is something that goes to Department of Labor. So the uh, emerging trend that we're seeing is that USCIS adjudicators are actually paying a little bit more close attention and reviewing those labors, those labor certifications to see if there's any information in there that would lead them to or allow them to question whether the job is a realistic job offer. So I'll give you a, uh, an example of a case that I recently worked on. USCIS issued a notice of intent to revoke on an I-140 that had been approved for many years. And the reason why is because the job on the labor was located in, uh, we'll just say Texas, for example. And the I-140 said that the beneficiary, at the time it was filed, the beneficiary was living in New York, and I think the beneficiary had also had his, uh, his or her adjustment application filed. And as many of you know, that adjustment application also, also includes another form called a G325A that lists your uh, address and your employment history, and that goes along with the green card application. So that said, he was living in New York, even though uh, uh, the I-140 said California, and then the, the, the perm was filed for a job in Texas. So USCIS just took all this information into account and said in a notice of intent to revoke that it wasn't plausible to commute between those locations, therefore the job offer was not realistic. Um, you know, luckily, we were able to show, though, in that case, that the labor that was filed, which, as many of you may know and recall, is for a future green card position, a future job offer, uh, but that job required travel and relocation in the requirements. So it was plausible that even though this person is working in one location, since it requires travel and relocation to other uh, locations, it's still a realistic job because being, you know, roving and peripatetic was in incorporated into the labor. So. Um, so I think what we're seeing there is that USCIS is looking more closely at labors, but they may not be looking closely enough and, you know, trigger some of these these issues, these notices of intent to revoke years down the road. Okay. So we've also seen where USCIS has raised questions about prior filings for the same position with slightly different requirements where an employer has position A, B, and C, or position A with three employees and the requirements are slightly different. And of course, the government's concern is whether it's being abused or misused to tailor each person's 
background and credentials to make it look like that's what the labor is being filed for. Uh, Kevin, can you share any examples? Yeah, once again, I think we're seeing um, USCIS kind of step into the role of what, you know, typically and traditionally Department of Labor, uh, you know, looks at, which is the labor certification and the requirements. So while my prior example was all about location, 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 uh, another example, a recent one that I saw was where the uh, an issue related to the education requirements. So what the what the notice of intent to revoke said from USCIS was that a comparison of another I-140 petition filed by that same company for a similar position uh, was performed, and the degree requirement for that was you know a bachelor's degree in just X Y Z. But this position is a similar position, but a degree in you know A is acceptable. So USCIS says, well, how come this job allows for a field of study in you know A, but the prior position, which is very similar, uh, only accepts uh, you know X, Y, and Z? And I think the you know the way we responded to that is there is also let, let's assign some actual fields of study to these letters. So you know let's say the job required computer science, information systems, math, engineering. There was also an or related component in both of those jobs. So what we uh, try to convey to USCIS is that you know these are examples and there are more expansive related fields of study that would be accepted. But you know the the more alarming thing here is just the fact that USCIS is being nitpicky with these things that uh, are traditionally looked at with a little bit more flexibility than what some of these adjudicators are stating in these NORs. Okay, thank you, Kevin. Uh, Brian, if I can come to you to ask, I know we touched briefly upon the whole issue of a bona fide job offer. So what kind of documents? Uh, is the USCIS coming back at the I-140 stage asking the employer? A good example is, as Kevin said, they're sort of taking on the role of Department of Labor. Or they're looking behind the DOL's certification of the labor cert, and they're asking for documents that are produced during the PERM process. In fact, they're asking for the print ads. They want to double check and see how was a position advertised in the PERM process. They're also asking for the labor certification compliance files recruitment report. And what they will they will ask for is proof that no U.S. worker applied for the job and was turned away. And that's not something we've seen with the I-140, um, pr- I-140 process traditionally, but we have seen that recent trend. Yeah, and I think, Sheila, also, I mean, that, that these requests could possibly be beyond what USCIS is authorized under the law to do because the, uh, you know, the statute, the Immigration Nationality Act, delegates the authority to make these determinations of whether there are qualified U.S. workers. All that is delegated by by law to Department of Labor, and they have an opportunity, Department of Labor, as many employers know, uh, you know, to audit the cases and do supervised recruitment and uh, really scrutinize that labor at the labor certification stage. Um, but because the authority to do that is delegated to, part, to Department of Labor, there shouldn't be uh, you know, a re-adjudication of those issues at, at USCIS stage as a general matter. Okay. Um, and you know, another thing I think that we're seeing also, Sheila, is that USCIS is asking for H-1B type of you know, employer-employee uh, control documentation. So um, I, I have a quote actually from one of these uh, notices of intent to revoke that I've worked on recently, and I, I think it's worth sharing. It says, your petition indicates that you are a recruitment slash staffing company. For this reason, you are required to submit signed and dated copy of an agreement between your company and the beneficiary that details all the terms and conditions of the beneficiary's proposed employment. In addition, please submit signed and dated copies of contracts between your company and any end client facilities. And they also ask for you know amendments and addendums and exhibits. Now, this is the kind of language we would typically see in an H-1B RFE or notice of intent to revoke. But 
to me, what was shocking is that this was something in an I-140 notice of intent to revoke. It's almost as if they lifted that boilerplate language and plopped it into one of these immigrant petitions. And, uh, you know, in this particular case, I think we were successful in basically telling USCIS that this is beyond their authority um, to ask for this. It's not related to whether or not there is a bona fide or realistic job offer. And, um, you know, we've been successful, but it, it is it does vary from case to case. It's interesting. They're kind of nipping closer and closer and closer to the heel. So it starts to get a little unnerving. And a lot of people who don't have a strong legal team or lawyers or who are trying to just save some time and money and do it in-house are likely to panic or, or f- figure that maybe this case is going to get denied. Or sometimes very often we find the employees end up quitting the, the, the company and finding another job because they're like, I've got an RFE. It's probably going to get denied because I don't have a good, strong argument to make without understanding that a lot of times it is possible to win by clearly enunciating and outlining where the proper criteria have been satisfied for an I-140 approval. Brian, is there anything else you would like to add about this? Absolutely. I think a lot of our our listeners and a lot of h employers have gotten used to the idea of showing more control over their workers, even where the even when the worker is working at a third-party end-client work site. And we've been doing that since the Donald Neufeld memo, the employer-employee control memo. But now, as Kevin and you have said, it's bleeding over into the I-140 format. So I think that employers have to treat it the same they have to be able to demonstrate that they either are controlling the worker if it's they're sponsoring a current employee for an I-140 or if it's for a future job they need to be able to document how they're going to control and document the daily progress of that employee status updates for the employee they need to have that worked into their I-140 and into the job duties I think that are are, uh, encompassed in that I-140. Yeah, I think just to build off of what Brian was saying, in, in addition to that, I think a great practice is to start master lists for your green card cases. Uh, you want to know how you're filing your green card cases, the positions, the minimum requirements, the actual job duties, and then make sure you're also keeping the same kind of master list for your H-1B positions. Uh, you know, the H-1B is how your foreign workers are able to work here in the present, and those requirements are a little bit different from what the future green card position would require. So as a practical matter, you know, small businesses, even larger businesses may not see uh, distinct lines between these occupations, but for immigration purposes, it's a good idea to build those lists so that USCIS can't come, you know, to you with these silly, well, you know, this job requires these fields of study, but this similar job doesn't have that field of study. Uh, it, that, that might be a practical way to just kind of preempt this so that you don't, you know, get involved in having to make this fight with USCIS. You're saying make the arguments in the cover letter of the petition? Not, not just make the but uh, identify, identify proactively and resolve any incons- apparent inconsistencies before submitting stuff, not just with this filing and that filing, but as a whole to USCIS, because as we're seeing, they're saying, well, we looked at this previous petition that you may have filed you know, years ago, and it says X, but now you're saying a little bit different than X. Right. And I think that's the crux of the issue is while the government and the USCIS focuses on I-140 petitions and the U.S. Department of Labor is supposed to review the labor certification or the PERM, the fact is that the labor certification is like the foundation underlying the I-140 petition, which is like building your first or second floor of your home. Therefore, if your foundation is weak, they're coming back and asking a bunch of questions on the foundation, even though technically that may be outside their jurisdiction and the scope of their authority directly, but they feel they have the absolute authority to do it because the I-140 rests on the foundation of the PERM labor certification and the approval of that labor certification. Right. Similarly, we've been seeing where USCIS has been issuing RFEs when the U.S. equivalency of the foreign degree or degrees is not clear from the initial evidence filed with the I-140 petition. 
particularly when using a combination of degrees in order to equate to the required education needed for the position per the PERM labor certification application. And, you know, we've kept, it needs to be, it's important to keep in mind that since different countries have different degree programs, not all degrees from different countries will equate to the four-year U.S. degree requirement to meet the baccalaureate standard. Yes, Sheila, I think the quintessential example of that is the comparison of a three-year bachelor's degree from the U.K. as opposed to a three-year U.S. bachelor's degree from, I'm sorry, a three-year bachelor's degree from India. So um, USCIS, generally speaking, would consider the three-year bachelor's degree from the United Kingdom to be equivalent to a four-year U.S. bachelor's degree. But the three-year Indian degree, and you know, we've we've attempted to make this argument that the uh, the amount of credits that one takes in the three-year degree is actually uh, commensurate, if not exceeding, the four-year U.S. baccalaureate program. But unfortunately, just as a practical matter, USCIS does not equate a three-year bachelor's degree from India to be the equivalent of a four-year U.S. bachelor's degree. Was there because there was more number of years of high school or pre-education? Canada, is it the same? With with UK, I believe there's an additional year, and that's part of the justification. But, you know, again, as a practical thing, I mean, the the, the amount of units. So they have 12 years of school plus one more? I think it's 13 and then one. 13 years of school, then the three years. Right. Whereas here we have 12 plus four. So they're saying there's a legitimate rationale reason for them to. Yeah, the 10 plus two. So in India, it's 10 plus two and then the three. Um, And not to get bogged down with the numbers, uh, but... But, you know, as it, just practically speaking, we just know that USCIS is not currently accepting this degree as a, a, a equatable to a four-year bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. But, Kevin, there's a way that we often deal with this, and that's uh, the fact that a lot of our clients hire very smart individuals who have not only done their Indian bachelor's degree, they've gone on and done a master's degree. And if you can show USCIS that the master's degree was two or maybe even a three-year master's, that can equate to a U.S bachelor's degree or can be the equivalent of a U.S. master's degree in computer science or information technology. So that's one way. If, if you have more education beyond that bachelor's degree, you really need to look at it as a whole, have a credential evaluation done for this person, and see what a U.S. professor would say, someone who's in charge of looking at applications for that university or college. And to show that it can equate to a U.S. bachelor's or maybe even a U.S. master's Absolutely. degree for purpose of meeting the educational requirements. Yeah, I'm sure our employers would get this question a lot from their from their uh, prospective workers. Uh, you know, can I do EB2? Can I do EB3? I think generally speaking, you know, when you have a three-year bachelor's degree followed by a two-year master's degree, whether it be an Indian two, uh, well, if it's an Indian two-year master's degree, USCIS is going to say that's equivalent to a bachelor's degree plus an additional year of experience. Um, but if you do have the three plus three, which a lot of um, Indian nationals do, three-year bachelor's degree followed by a three-year master's degree, USCIS is generally considering that to be the equivalent of a U.S. master's degree. So that's um, you know more clear qualification for free B two purposes. Um, and again, as a reminder, you can get to EB2 by having a job that qual- requires a bachelor's degree followed by five years of progressive experience after that. So even our uh, workers with the three plus two, they have a significant amount of experience after that. But before joining the green card sponsoring employer, EB2 might be an option for them as well. 
Um, but in all of these scenarios, you're going to need to get a evalu- an evaluation from a reputable professional credentials evaluator. And um, they need to be familiar with this uh, so-called ACRO Edge database. And that's the evaluators that USCIS are, are using and, and give the most weight to. So there are many evaluators out there, but the one that USCIS throws the most weight at is the ACRO Edge um, uh, database. That's A-A-C-R-A-O. Edge, E-D-G-E. It's a simple Google search to find them. Um, so, But that's that's the one that USCIS relies on primarily, and they're saying that a three-year Indian degree is by itself not the same as a four-year bachelor's degree in, from the United States. Thank you, Kevin. So in terms of switching gears a little bit, if the employer now wants to show the prior experience or the employee needs to show that they can meet the minimum educational requirements, what is the safest or the best kind of evidence to submit? The gold standard and what USCIS wants to see is a letter from a prior employer on the company letterhead showing the company's address and signed by an authorized company employee, authorized executive manager. And this letter should state not only the employee's name and dates of employment, it's critical that it includes the job title and most critically the job duties that the person performed during that time frame. So we, we sometimes see letters that come in where it'll have the person's job title, and it'll be just two sentences long. And that may be okay in some circumstances, but USCIS wants to see the job duties. They may not rely on that job title because companies have different titles for different people. It's not a uniform system. So. And what happens if the employer, if the person, the company shut down or they can't show what what, what can they? What can this individual do? We see that sometimes it's a very fast, dynamic industry. Some company may have gone out of business or been purchased. They may not be able to get a letter. In that situation, if you can find some of your, if the employee can find some of their former colleagues that can say, hey, you know, I worked at this company, Company X with Rom. I worked with him for three or four years. I knew his job title was this. I knew the job duties he did were, were these. That, in a sworn affidavit, can be secondary evidence that USCIS will accept in lieu of a employer letter. It's important to have you know, one or two of these cover affidavits, again, notarized. And um, you need to demonstrate that you cannot get the letter from the employer. And USCIS, please accept this in the alternative. Okay. And what happens if both of these are not available? Is there anything else like secondary evidence or other documents or information, Kevin, that possibly could be submitted? Uh, yes, Sheila. So uh, when I when I'm advising clients on this issue, I I, I tell them, you know, that, as Brian had mentioned before, the letter from the employer is the best evidence. If you can't get that letter as the um, as your best evidence, then the follow up should be two colleague affidavits and then an affidavit explaining why you can't get that primary evidence. And you should always actually submit some secondary evidence along with those affidavits just to demonstrate that it is more likely than not that you had this job. So, you know, secondary evidence can be W-2s, pay stubs, offer letter, termination letter, even just emails back and forth, evidence of your work product. Um, But, you know, generally, if you're going to only submit secondary evidence, which we do not recommend, USCIS will most likely issue a request for evidence and ask you for those primary things that Brian had mentioned, the employment letter or and or, you know, coworker affidavits. Um, One thing to keep in mind, uh, you know, in this in this climate of investigation with, uh, uh, you know, in certain industries with immigration, one thing to keep in mind is that if you get experience letters from companies who had previously been investigated, and I know Brian has a lot of experience with um, dealing with those kinds of cases, 
Um, sometimes USCIS is going to ask for additional secondary evidence anyway because the company's statements might not be considered trustworthy if that company had been associated with, uh, you know, compliance issues or being become some kind of fraud or misrepresentation. Uh, I think we sometimes see a, a guilt by association um, in between the lines in some of these notices of intent to revoke, and I think Brian's worked on a lot of those too. Okay, so now changing from documenting the experience to the issue of the ability to pay an employer's ability to pay. So many of you as employers, as companies, realize that you absolutely need to meet the proof, the ability to pay the employee or the beneficiary of the sponsored I-140 petition, and not just for this particular employee, but for all prior I-140 petitions that you have filed for the uh, particular, by the particular employer for different employees. And it has to be shown right from the date of the establishment of the priority date, which is when the perm was filed, until the individual or the individuals actually become permanent residents. Um, so, so Brian, what is it? What does the employer need to show when there are multiple employees or beneficiaries are going through the I-140 petition process? Thank you, Sheila. This is an important issue because we've been talking about current employees or future job offers. Some employers may be willing to sponsor someone for a future job, and you may end up accumulating a number of obligations to people for these uh, these wages. So if you have five, eight, or ten people you sponsor through the PERM and the I-140 process, USCIS is keeping track of all of those workers and all of those wages, and you may get an RFE saying, hey, prove your ability to pay. We've got this list, and they will print out the names and the and the wages there. And it's important that you as the employer understanding that this is a cumulative responsibility that every single person that you file an I-140 for, you have to show that you have enough mo- uh, money, enough, you know, in the, your uh, in your cash register till to cover all those workers for every single monthly payment that would become due. So I think it's important to have a list. The best practice is to keep track of the number of workers that you've sponsored, what each worker's prevailing wage is, and if you are, if some of them are current employees, that helps, and you can show what you've been paying them. And you need to estimate or know, not even estimate, you need to know the, precisely the difference between what you have been paying and what your cumulative obligation is, because that's what you have to show USCS if you file an, another I-140 or if you get an RFE. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah I just want to say Brian is um, absolutely right. It's a great idea to track that because what we see is RFEs asking for precisely this information. Uh, I know Brian and I have worked on I've worked on cases where uh, there was the request for ability to pay on you know 120 plus I-140 beneficiaries. So um, to put that together in the time frame that you have in R- to respond to an RFE might be a little bit more stressful than preparing uh, you know and and knowing that you're meeting the obligation. So the uh, just to clarify something there, the uh, the ability to pay requirement is you know the company needs to show that it has the ability to pay the wage from the priority date you know when that labor is filed until the time that that person actually becomes a green card holder. So you know actually what you pay the wage, the, the wage you actually pay to the worker is one way to demonstrate it, but the other way um, that Brian was alluding to is looking at the company's net current uh, assets and or net income. So between what you pay the, comp- the worker um, and what's in your net income and or net current assets, it all needs to be able to cumulatively meet your total ability to pay a uh, wage obligation for all of your workers. And to the extent that there's a gap between the two, then you need to still show that that you have that in your finance, you know, in your exactly. checking account, et cetera. Exactly. And another option that some employers use is to withdraw the I-140 petition if it's needed 
Um, for example, if the employee has actually left the company and the employer does not plan on hiring that individual back again, or if the job is no longer valid, things change in the business, uh, and perhaps that position is no longer required, the employee's left, then the I-140 petition could be withdrawn. Um, some larger companies tend to not withdraw because they find that there is absolutely no problem because they're huge and you're talking billions of dollars and it's you know, traded on stock market exchanges. But with a lot of smaller, mid-size companies, they tend to want to withdraw for in the example that Kevin just gave because then they otherwise they may not be able to meet the ability to pay test in showing that they have sufficient funds. And withdrawing the I-140 petitions as needed will help smaller or mid-sized employers to maintain and keep track of the people who are still being sponsored and to make sure that the company's financial documents will be able to show that the employer is able to pay all of the required or proffered wages. What kind of financial documents are used to uh, as evidence in these kinds of cases, Brian? USCIS is going to look for federal tax returns, audited financial statements. And to be clear here, this is not just a statement prepared by the company accountant or parent in-house. It has to be an audited financial statement. Or if you're a really large company, an annual report is sufficient to show this. Okay. And uh, Kevin, any? Uh, yeah, I think also the uh, you know companies that employ more than 100 employees if can provide a letter from the company's CFO just attesting to the company's ability to pay. So it's a little bit less of a... Uh, documentary requirement. But, uh, you know, small companies and everything can also use secondary evidence to uh, demonstrate the ability to pay, such as profit and loss statements, bank statements, lines of credit. Um, you know, we, we've had to make some interesting and unique arguments about the ability to pay, depending on a, co- a company's structure and, and what kind of assets and things that they have coming in and going out. Um, and sometimes they're successful, and, and sometimes it's a little bit more challenging. But generally speaking, uh, you know, the company needs to show... The, one thing to keep in mind here is the, the the evidentiary standard. We need to show that it's more likely than not that the company would have the ability to pay the wage uh, from the priority date until the fi- the approval of the green card. Um, so, you know, there's different things you can show to do that, and there is case law that allows for some flexibility. So if a company is maybe negative one particular year because of some unique thing like the Great Recession or just upfront uh, costs in buying some hardware, uh, upfront investment capital spent, uh, USCIS can be a little bit flexible in, in uh, you know, excusing that and, and applying a little discretion here. But generally speaking, if you're not uh, paying the offered wage to the worker if they're currently working for you, especially if they're working in an uh, H-1B uh, status but working on the also the future green card position if they happen to be the same, um, that can reflect poorly on the sponsoring employer. So it's a good idea to, uh, you know, in practice, it's a good idea to pay that wage up front, but if they're working in an H-1B position that doesn't require it, you do have to pay the required H-1B wage, but just know that if there's a gap between the H-1B present job wage and the future position green card wage, that gap is going to need to be filled in one of those sources that Brian and myself had mentioned, tax returns, uh, financial statements, profit and loss statements, bank statements. Um, so the company is going to need to fill that gap if it exists. And even in those cases which were just which was just mentioned about a company, an employer having more than 100 employees where the CFO or the accountant can actually give a letter, uh, sometimes we've seen where USCIS has come back and issued RFEs saying, sorry, we want the tax return, right. the letter is not sufficient. So keep in mind, the primary evidence is always more 
much stronger and more beneficial than trying to rely on secondary evidence, even though the government's own regulations or policy might allow you to submit alternate documents. So to try and kind of wrap up and conclude, because we always try to get done between the 30 to 40 minutes, 45 minutes to be sensitive to your issues and timings, as well as share valuable information that will really help you as an employer, keep in mind that USCIS is reviewing the underlying perm for potential inconsistencies during the I-140 review stage. Obviously, it's very important to have a strong knowledge and understanding, preferably you're working with a good, strong legal team to ensure that the underlying labor certification for the perm actually was rock solid so that when the I-140 and the I-485 are filed later on, both of those are really safe, will protect the employer and the employee, and will result in approvals for all parties. Um, we hope that today you have gotten a broad overview of the sorts of issues that are raised, what kinds of issues can come up, and on, obviously it will be an honor and pleasure for us at the Murthy Law Firm to continue to help and guide you and your HR team as you determine which law firm or which legal team to work with to ensure the I-1, the PERM approval, the I-140 approval, and the 485 approval for you and for your valued employees. It looks like Brian wants to add something more. I just wanted to add, Sheila, that we've seen, we've been talking here about increased scrutiny from USCIS. We also see that in the Department of Labor context, especially from the wage and hour division, which looks at uh, H-1B compliance. But what, what struck me is talking about going over this and getting ready for this, this uh, teleconference was that USCIS is doing this in a different way, which is through their fraud detection and national security officers. We've all heard about FDNS over the last couple of years, and there was a lot of site visits that went on for a long time. People coming asking questions, where is this person working at? What's their salary? What's their job duties? Well, now we've found they've gone from the collection phase into the implementation phase, and what they're doing is they're issuing lots and lots of NORs, Notice of Intent to Revoke, on H-1B cases. So I think if you haven't already started to see this with your employees, you may see it where someone paid a visit to your end client or your headquarters two years ago, and now a NOR comes out. So where USCIS is adding extra emphasis now on PERMs, they're also doing it on H-1B cases. And you have to be careful, and as Kevin said, be consistent, be proactive, and plan how you're doing things, because the little details that may have gone unnoticed before with new computer systems, USCIS is putting them together, and it can be problems now. So we're, we're helping employers overcome these NORs, but USCIS is definitely using information from the recent past they've collected and is now causing problems for employers. Sure. And speaking about FDNS and fraud detection and national security, my understanding is that you all are organizing some kind of a conference or seminar, teleconference, specifically on the, the, the issue to try to help and protect employers and businesses so that uh, a much more ex expansive and detailed, maybe a half-day conference of some kind, where we really are being instead of trying to do give a broad overview, really getting into the nitty gritty to try and strengthen the company, the corporation, the documents to protect the the employer, because we're finding that as the government is hiring, the Department of Homeland Security is hiring more and more fraud detection and national security or FDNS agents. It's almost like they're determined to find fraud, even if it's marginal or doesn't exist. And and it's like the the saying where if a cop follows you for two city blocks, they're going to find either a red or an orange light that you crossed. 
that you as employers need to be very careful and mindful of how your paperwork is maintained and what you do. And Brian Green and Finkelstein and the entire legal team here is going to create, I guess, a separate conference for which you may get a separate invitation to really look at how you can improve a lot of those kinds of issues to protect you, your valued uh, company, and your employees so that you can actually continue to do business and succeed and thrive in this challenging and difficult environment. So unless anybody has any other parting thoughts, we want to thank you for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to help you and guide you and hold your hand as you try to figure out the constantly changing complex nature of immigration law issues. Of course, if you ever need the best legal team in the world, you know it is Murthy.com, and we would be honored to help you if you ever need our help. Have a wonderful day, and thank you for being available to share your time with us this afternoon.